0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Alas for poor Alexander the metalworker, remembered in 2 Timothy for all time. We'll come back to him uh, another time. So this morning, I want to talk about parables. The parables of Jesus are first and foremost an invitation to those of us who hear them. They are a little bit like opening a door into the kingdom of God. They offer us an opportunity to step into a different world and imagine what it might be like to live in that new place that Jesus describes. Of course, the parables are also among Jesus's most beloved and popular teachings, so they're pretty familiar to most of us sometimes, or at least we like to think we know them pretty well. But I want to argue that familiarity with a story from Scripture doesn't mean we can just brush past it, especially if we think we know exactly what it's about. In fact, I think it's probably the case that for many of us, it's those stories that we know best that we need to spend the most time digging into. Because the stories in Holy Scripture are not just that easy to master. And we should always try to hear them as if for the very first time. Now that doesn't mean that having a favorite Bible story or a book that you particularly love is a bad thing. But instead that Scripture does have authority over us. And we have to try to listen to it intently, even when we feel like we're in pretty familiar territory. Have you ever had that experience of getting turned around somewhere that you think it's impossible for you to get lost? And for the first little while you tell yourself, well, I'm definitely not lost. I know this place like the back of my hand, only to realize that you are now very, very lost. I heard this week a story from a friend of mine about her experience of leaving a Sounders match over on the other side of the water and walking about five blocks in the wrong direction after dark before she realized that she was very much turned around and getting so flummoxed by the lateness of the hour and her inability to figure out the way to the ferry terminal that she instead picked up her phone and got an Uber for about $150 back to Port Orchard. (coughs) Rather than just getting a ride to the ferry terminal, she was so panicked that she just said, take me home, I'm done. Scripture can do that to you if you let it, making the familiar seem strange, but with much more positive and hopefully less expensive outcomes. So hearing it for the first time should always be the goal, particularly for a parable like this one we hear this morning about the Pharisee and the tax collector. We have to imagine a little bit what the first audience must have heard, because when this parable was first told by Jesus, as soon as the Pharisee was mentioned they would have assumed that the Pharisee was the protagonist of the story. If not the hero, at least the good guy. Pharisees were understood by most first century Jews to be righteous men with large social influence. It's a little bit like if I had told you a story that began, there was a man who was an orthopedic surgeon. They are pious and prayerful people, leaders to be admired and followed by others. And what's more... This Pharisee is so devoted that he exceeds even the most rigorous requirements of the law. He says that he fasts twice a week. And in addition to tithing on his own property, he offers tithes on everything that he receives. Which means he's offering tributes to God, not just on things that are his, but on gifts that he receives from others that should already have been tithed on. So this man is outwardly righteous in every way imaginable. He's a moral pillar of his community and would not have been the obviously negative example that you and I think of when we hear the word Pharisee. Now, on the other hand, tax collectors then, as always, were men to be avoided, even perhaps explicitly loathed. Jews regarded those who collected taxes for the Roman Empire as collaborators with the occupying enemy, traitors to their people and nation. And there were many, many taxes imposed by the Romans. And whatever the tax collector could get from the people on top of the cost of his license was pure profit. So you can see that tax collectors had a strong motivation to abuse their status and squeeze every last coin out of those they were taxing. They were a little bit like the mafia of their day, running a protection racket with government endorsement. And it was commonly understood that only murderers and robbers were worse people than tax collectors. They were forbidden from serving as judges or witnesses in court because they had such deficient character. So based on initial observations, The Pharisee and the tax collector exist on the opposite ends of the Jewish moral imagination. What a twist it must have been then to hear at the end of this parable that only one of the men who prayed in the temple went home justified. And it's not the righteous man of generosity and piety, but the scheming tax collector. What a stunning reversal for those who place their trust in themselves who believe that they are righteous, but treat others with contempt. Contempt is the outlook that informs this whole little story. The Pharisee makes the error of believing that he can be obedient to God, but still look down on his neighbor. That it's possible to be so thankful for all of God's blessings and the religious righteousness that he embodies, that he can look down on others whose own story he knows nothing about Do you hear all those first-person pronouns in his prayer? I, 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 repeated five times. The Pharisee has wrapped himself up in a very cozy blanket of self-righteousness, trusting that everything is going to work out in his favor because of his good deeds and his religious devotion. He's so confident that he can point out someone else in the room who he knows he is better than. And he looks down on those around him because they don't match his outward appearance of devout faithfulness. The tax collector, by contrast, knows that he's a man with a bad reputation and that he's done wrong. He's a little bit like the character in a Johnny Cash song. He is such a miserable sinner that he can't even lift his head up to heaven to look towards God. The weight of his misdeeds hold him down. It's likely that because of that practice of skimming cash off the top from others, it would have been impossible for him to even begin to calculate the depth of his wrongdoing. So his sin is not just chronic, it's overwhelming. He cannot hope to add it all up and try to make restitution. So he has no choice but to beg God for mercy. Now, I think that most Christians... Probably most religious people want to think of ourselves like the tax collector. But over time, we realize we are much more in danger of becoming like the Pharisee. It's a deadly temptation for us, those of us who are trying to be faithful, because we start to believe that faithfulness itself makes us better than others, and that such faithfulness comes about because of some inherent qualities that you and I possess and not by the grace of God. This is actually not that hard a parable to interpret, because sometimes originality, particularly in the gospel, is deeply overrated. So when you hear the same scripture over and over again, sometimes it's okay to hear the same truth. We cannot hope to love and serve God as we have been called to do, while also looking with disdain on our neighbors, whether they are believers or not. This prideful kind of sin sneaks up on us. It's perhaps most dangerous because we want so badly to do the right things and be the right kinds of people, and we want the same for others. But their decisions and their faithfulness are not ours to judge. If we are righteous, if we do good deeds and live our lives according to God's wisdom, it's not because of any strength or knowledge that we've come up with on our own, but only because God has been merciful to us and made it possible. None of us is made righteous by our own action. And when we presume to believe that we are above another, we repeat the arrogant sin of this Pharisee. Christians are in danger of slipping into this kind of pride because we think we understand the nature of the world better than the average person. We believe that because we're seeking to follow Jesus, we're better equipped to deal with the changes and chances of this life. And while that might be true, we should also be those who are quickest to acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for God's grace. This pernicious self-regard is most dangerous because when we exclude others, or we believe ourselves to be better than they are for some reason, We place ourselves at great risk of being excluded from the fellowship of the kingdom of God. The Gospels present the choice very clearly. We can choose to humble ourselves now and be exalted later, or we can exalt ourselves now at the expense of others and expect to be humbled. The great 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said this about Christians and humility. They cannot forget that they owe all they have and hope for to free grace, and this keeps them lowly. They are brands plucked from the fire, debtors who could not pay for themselves, captives who must have remained in prison forever, but for undeserved mercy, wandering sheep who were ready to perish when the shepherd found them, and what right then have they to be proud what right then have we to be proud? The good bishop is correct. We have nothing to be proud of because what we have is not actually ours in the first place. It is a free gift of grace that we must receive with humility from God. Now, of course, the challenge is that there are no prizes for humility No hall of fame for those who offer themselves in humble service to others. No earthly bonus offered for being the most humble in any given setting. Humbling ourselves, in fact, is only possible when we begin to realize that humility is not a strategy that we can adapt. Or a technique that we can master. You cannot hope to achieve it or to fake it. So as aspiring disciples of Jesus, we find that we have to imitate his example. We have to humble ourselves as he did. That humility of Christ led him to a life of sacrifice. In fact, it is, of course, the thing that led him all the way to the cross. It means that humility cannot be brought about by us, by anything but God answering our prayer to be made humble and asking for him to be glorified by our service. This means seeking to love and serve others as if they were Jesus himself, regarding their needs as more important than our own. And that kind of humility has real implications for how we live our lives. And we will know that it has taken root in our hearts when it begins to change how we see ourselves as well as those around us. If we can set what we want, if we can set our desires to one side and recognize the other as someone for whom Christ died, then we are one step closer to seeing the whole world with the eyes of Jesus. I think it's actually quite helpful to have this kind of stark, direct parable for us this morning as we get ready for our annual parish meeting after church this morning It's often said, of course, that the church is in danger of losing her influence, that Christians should be wary of being pushed to the margins of society. But if Jesus' teaching is any indication, we should be less concerned about our influence and more worried about our pride. We may be like the Pharisee, having such proud hearts that even our prayers are designed only to reinforce our overindulged ego. Let me put it as plainly as I can stand. If it's the case that the world at large is less receptive to the message of Jesus, it may be because the church has consistently allowed self-righteousness to become a tool for exclusion. Rather than confessing our sin and pointing to Jesus, we have proclaimed our own foolishness as wisdom. We have glorified our own meager contributions over what he has done and loudly told anybody who would listen just how much better we are than other people. It is a tragedy of epic proportions that Christians are seen by anybody as judgmental, prideful people. That we have been unable or unwilling to embody the humility that Christ modeled for us on the cross. And we should repent. Now this is one of those matters about which we might be inclined to wash our hands. Because we feel that we're not guilty of this kind of pride. I would suggest that itself might be something to reflect on. So why should we have to apologize for when we've done nothing wrong? I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who has just begun to pray the daily office. He was sharing his struggle with the structure of the morning prayer service, which begins almost immediately with the confession of sin. And my friend felt strongly that this was unfair to him, <laughs> because when he prays right after waking up, there's hardly been any actual time for him to do any sinning. What does he have to confess? I gently reminded him that the confession of sin is not primarily about balancing some kind of cosmic checkbook of rights and wrongs. It's not about clearing out your debts with the Lord, because Christ has done that already. But the confession is primarily acknowledging that sin is part of our common human nature, that we all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And whether we feel it or not, We have been the prideful Pharisee, looking down on our neighbor, and we all need to repent and humble ourselves in order to be justified and enter into the kingdom. I think that note at the end of the selection this morning is crucial, that neither man knows when he leaves the temple whether or not he has been justified before God, that the man who stands at a distance with his head down has actually been forgiven, and that the one who stands confidently in the presence of the Lord has not. We are all in need of that justification. This parable is an invitation offered to us by Jesus Christ for those who have ears to hear and hearts ready to receive it. My prayer is that we are all ready to be such people. Amen.